Welcome to the School of the Forest podcast, episode 12. Welcome to the School of the Forest podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Russell. This podcast aims to educate you about outdoor living skills, give you a first-person approach to wilderness ecology, and provide you with a glimpse into the different methods people are using for sustainable living. To find out more about our programs, please visit schoolofforest.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. It's... uh... I'm getting very consistent with these now. I'm doing about one a month. And uh, so I'm here today with uh, my good friend and sort of my one of my former mentors, Paul Sveum. How are you doing, Paul? What's up, Christopher? I'm doing great. Good. Good to, good to, good to Zoom you this morning. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice way to uh, connect with people. Um, it's been like the only socialization I've gotten all winter, barring, you know, my partner and the dog. So it's nice. Yeah, I wasn't gonna bring it up, but you're kind of looking. You're kind of looking like it. Uh, yeah, I know. I don't know. I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can see this, but I I had a face to face run in with an owl at the museum, and that's like the most like physical contact I've had all winter. Was an owl running into my face while I was shoveling out its enclosure. There's not there's not many people I know that would tell me that story that I would totally get it. Like it would make. Yeah, sense. exactly. I, I don't need to ask any other any questions about that. I, yeah. <laughs> It probably looked in, in in my head as like Elmer Fudd. Like I looked up and he was just right there and then kind of climbed up my head. Um, and, you know, it, if it were really a Looney Tunes thing, I would have like gone and gotten a shovel and come out and chased him and then like chased him into a tree and then been chased out of that tree by a bigger owl, you know, like one, two times the size of me, like just back and forth. Anyway, uh you know, what's funny is Paul and I, Paul and I, before we started recording, said that we should be cautious of being rambly as we both are able to do. And we haven't even said what we're talking about yet. And we're already off on a tangent. So Paul and I are here today to talk about, uh, talk about fly fishing and specifically fly fishing in regards to uh, ecology. So Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself and your, uh, your sort of obsession <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So I will, uh, I got to throw the disclaimer out there. I have a one and a half year old baby girl in my lap right now who's got arms like an octopus. <laughs> so if I seem distracted, um, I'm trying to keep like eight different things kind of floating around me at once here. Um, and, and, and she didn't sleep great last night. So there's going to be some disjointedness on top of Christopher's and I's penchant for a good ramble. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, basically, basically uh, like I say, uh, uh, middle age, uh, I'm a human looking for a, you know, a good cup of coffee and trying to figure out the meaning of life and make fire with sticks. And I got two baby girls in my house. And on top of all that, I, I still try to get out and fish from time to time. Like, like Christopher said, this is a fishing fishing show. So we'll, we'll try to loop it around as much as we can back to fishing. So but, tell uh, us. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Distracted. Go for it. So tell us a little bit about how, what drew you to fly fishing? Is this like a lifelong thing or did it happen a little later? No, no, put baby down. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, so I, uh, I grew up in Wisconsin. And I think if you, you grew up in Wisconsin, it's kind of like being a Mainer or maybe a New Hampshireite, um, where you, you just kind of have this uh, biological imperative to, you know, to be outside and to fish and to hunt and, and just kind of walk around and so I, I grew up kind of a typical country kid uh you know I fished a lot uh you know I had a grandpa that was way into fishing and um you know he was kind of my uh you know gateway 
human being into, you know, fishing. And uh, I will throw it out there. I'm not going to get too heavy with this, uh, but uh, I was thinking about this the other day that I was looking, I was, I was trying to clean up my fly fishing area, which uh, if you get into any hobby in life, I'm sure you're inundated with stuff. Um, and I was looking at all my fly rods and I was remembering when I was younger, I actually had my grandpa's fly rod, uh, which was really cool. And that was kind of what I learned to fish with. Couldn't tell you what it was like, or I don't remember it too well. But at one point in my early twenties, it became a prop when we were growing weed. And I can say that now because it's more or less legal and it became a prop. It was our excuse of why we were out in this river. And so I would carry it with us in case anyone asked. Um, and I lost it because of all of that like summer of chaos and, and, and growing grass and whatever. And so I lost it. And I, it's a really lame, uh, lame story on why you lost like a family heirloom. Um, but really, like I said, I kind of grew up, grew up outdoors um, and uh, pretty much been fishing my whole life. But, uh, well, sorry, baby distraction. She's like Doc Doc from the <laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned uh living outdoors tell us a little bit about i know for a fact that you lived on an island like like a character from a gary paulson book for a little while you want to tell us a little bit more about that uh i think it's more robert service and gary paulson uh, it had <laughs> uh but there was actually a lot of civility involved in that whole endeavor um but yeah, so uh, long story short, uh, I was kind of transient. I was a musician uh, in my earlier life. And I just kind of became obsessed with this idea. Uh, sidebar, uh, and, and Christopher can attest to this, you know, we both kind of have a philosophical mind. We're always kind of thinking about what, what makes life life and, and what, the, what the heck we're doing here. I assume this is rated PG, so I'll go with the heck on that one. Um, and so, you know, I always think about life and you know, what we're doing here. And so when I was in my early 20s, I kind of got hooked in this idea of like, well, you know, if, if modern life isn't really working, what works? And, uh, you know, to me, what made the most sense being a pragmatic Midwesterner was, let's just go back to what's worked well in the past. And to me, what worked well in the past was, uh, you know, traditional skills or what I kind of later uh, was introduced as bushcraft or primitive living or, or whatever we kind of want to call it. And so I, I decided I was just going to uh, move out this little, yeah, that's your mama in a picture. I was just going to move out to this little island south of Madison in Wisconsin. And, and so I did it and I didn't know what I was doing. And I built like a little wiki up, I guess it would have been. Um, and I repurposed some people's like bird hunting blinds and maybe a dock or two. And I built like this little shed and I lived out there for four or five months. And it was, it was really an eye opener. Uh, you know, I fished and, and foraged a lot. And that was, that was kind of my introduction to living outside. Um, and maybe uh, you fast forward six or seven years and uh, I'm, I'm living just in a slightly better shelter uh, year round. I did uh, uh, the better part of four or five years living in a nine by 12 wall tent uh, year round in Maine and, and, and back in Wisconsin. Uh, a, a tent that became just pretty much a pile of fly fishing gear to, to bring it back to fishing. Yeah. Yep. That, uh, that checks out. So Paul used to do my job at Jack Mountain. Um, so there were a lot of days of, I actually live on your tent platform now, um, half of the year. So that is, that is, yeah, there's some, some passing down of heritage there, huh? Just like we were talking about. I love, um, I love yeah, it. that wall tent was moved from the big field up by the outhouses. And I think another, I think someone else had lived in that too. So that, 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 
that platform has seen some. It, it, it can Philly Salonic, I think, lived on it. Anyway, it yeah, anyway. yeah, but uh, yeah. So with like you say, with all of that, it was sort of an eye opener for you and got you involved in uh, got you involved in this kind of. I don't know what you would call it, lifestyle or kind of desire to live a little more, uh, a little more in the rhythm of what's going on around you. And, you know, that there's yeah, this quote sure. that I found researching for this uh, by John Gierick, which is a good ecologist can dovetail into dovetail until the whole thing stretches out of sight. We call it an ecosystem now. Early Americans called it the sacred circle. Either way, it can make your little head swim with a vision of a thing so great size and strength that still depends on the underpinning of its smallest members. Um, and so John Gierick is a pretty famous fly fishing writer. Um, he's specifically in that quote talking about, um, you know, kind of his eyes being opened by looking at the, the ecology of a river or stream that he's fishing. And I would be curious to hear you kind of talk about that, that, that kind of philosophy where I know a lot of people that are consistently pulling fish out of the water but don't really understand much more beyond yanking on the line when something bites it. Um, and the, you know, if you're, if the, that's your thing, go for it. But I think that there's a, a benefit to seeing that bigger picture. And I'd love to hear you talk about it a little um, just because you are a fly fisherman and I have distinct memories of you trying to teach me to fly fish on in my time as a student <laughs> and finding it, I, I found it incredibly frustrating. I like tying flies, but the fly fishing thing uh, has just been a constant struggle for me to get into. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of transitioning into a lot of more teaching these days of, of fly fishing, and um, I'm doing a lot of casting classes now. And what I tell people is anyone can play basketball because you know how to run. Hopefully, you know how to run. And that's kind of how I look at, uh, you know, spin or, or bait casting. Uh, no bias. That's how I grew up, chucking worms. Um, but everyone knows how to throw a worm and you can figure it out in two minutes. Um, but I always tell them that fly fishing is like playing ice hockey where you got to learn how to skate first before you can even play the game. Um, and so that's, you know, casting, being able to get that terminal tackle out there is kind of that ice is getting the skates under your feet and learning how to move first, um, which I think is kind of one of the appealing aspects of fly fishing it has that kind of firewall of skill where you, you, you kind of got to be able to at least, uh, <laughs> you gotta be able to skate just a little bit um uh so yeah yeah Gerard, he's awesome um and i think the next paragraph in that quote has something to do with where humans fit into that which is probably the crux of a lot of our conversations you know, where do we fit into all that but um yeah so I, I lived out in montana quite a bit um and one of the times i lived outdoors again was in a uh, I don't know, it was like a nine by 12 utility trailer, the kind of like construction guys use. Um, bought a new one, retrofitted to be a camper. So it was kind of like urban incognito where you could camp in the city and no one really gets you suspicious because they figured you were just like fixing someone's pipes or reshingling a rope or something. And during that time on the weekends, I just take it out to uh, the Madison River in Montana, which is, uh, you know, probably top. I'm sure people are going to argue with this, but it's definitely like a top tier, top 10 river and in most fly fishermen's bucket list of places you got to get in life. It's just, it's phenomenal. And I remember parking on the side of that river and not having a lot of that dovetailing in my head, not having a lot of the intricate knowledge of what was going on. I was just kind of like 
kind of analysis paralysis. You're just exposed to all this stimuli and you don't really know how to take it in. Um, and so that that point kind of marked a lot of trial and error for me. No. Well, it did, honey. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that really got me going into fly fishing where I realized that it was kind of this universe and a universe and a universe kind of multiverse kind of um, activity. And I, I, I love that. that. That really, my brain really, really digs on that. Um, but I, I, I was going to jump the tracks here with you for a second, Chris, and that's cool. Jump the tracks. Get back to fly fish, I promise. Um, Don't so, away. <laughs> babies distracted by pictures. I got coffee. So there's this idea, and this isn't like a revolutionary idea. I'm sure that a lot of people have heard of this. It's called uh, inattentional blindness. Um, and I picked it up on a podcast a little while ago. Um, and it describes the phenomena that you can only really see what you're prepared to see in life. And if you're not prepared to see it, things can totally elude you. Like you can be totally blind to their existence. Um, and I got two examples and one of them is like Harvard. It's, it's classic psychology experiment. And the other one's a little bit like speculation and, and maybe a little bit of like uh, conspiracy theory ish kind of stuff. Um, but essentially the, the idea goes that, and this is kind of like the myth one, the myth goes that when the first Europeans were sailing through the Caribbean, Columbus or whoever, the boats would approach islands with native Caribbeans, native people from that area. And the story goes is that the boats were so alien to the inhabitants of those islands that they couldn't see the boats. They were invisible to them. They could see the waves from the boats and they could see the Europeans when they got into smaller boats and approached the shore upon which they were like, you know, bombarded by all kinds of weaponry, but they couldn't see the big boats because their brains and their understanding of reality weren't prepared to see them. And so they were essentially blind, not that they were like literally invisible, um, even though I'm sure a lot of Europeans would like to think that. Um, it's this idea that you can miss things right in front of you if you're not paying attention. So that's kind of like the, the fanciful, the, the, the legit is that Harvard experiment in the 70s of the gorilla experiment where a couple of psychologists um, put together this experiment where there's a bunch of, and you can check it out online, it's all over the place. And there's all kinds of like iterations of this where there was a group of people all bouncing basketballs, I believe. And they got a group of people together as subjects. And they said in this period of time, count how many times the players wearing white passed the basketball to another person in white to paraphrase. It's probably not quite right, but you get the point. And so you're focusing as this experiment goes on, on these people bouncing and passing basketballs. Meanwhile, like halfway through this experiment, <laughs> yep, some person in a full-size gorilla suit just walks through your screen, looks at you, does a little dance and then exits stage left. And if you're kind of like ready for it, it's like totally obvious. But when they first started running this experiment, only 50% of the people saw the gorilla. It was totally invisible to them because they were so focused on one specific reality that when something came into their field of view that was not congruent with what they were expecting, they just didn't see it. Um, and I thought that was a really cool idea. And it does, I promise, apply to fly fishing um, in the way that when we go to the river, we're presented with all this stimuli. And um, if you're not ready to see it, you're going to miss things. And you know, you can definitely go to the river and just watch the people playing basketball and, and you're going to catch fish. But I, I personally don't like the idea that I'm missing things in life. 
that are right in front of me. Um, and so, you know, we go to the river, you know, and the average person can, you know, see the fish, they see the water, they see the current, maybe you see a few bugs flying around. And if that's enough for you, then that's cool. But there's so much more. And I, I kind of think that's maybe what we're getting at today is, you know, what's that bigger kind of picture of fly fishing? You know, what's it take to be that good ecologist like you pulled out of that quote? Um, and I think the more we can kind of pare down that inattentive blindness, you know, the, the better of a fly fisherman you're going to be and the better of an ecologist you're going to be, and I would make the leap probably the better of a human being you're going to be, just because you're in tune with nature and not just uh, out there for a good time. Sure, that's that's awesome. I, I love that idea. Do you find that it... Um, do what? What do you think? Do you find that... Um, <laughs> do you find that the... Uh, that that mentality transfers to other outdoor pursuits, you know, cause you're, I mean, even ones like fly fishing or hunting or um, anything like that, you're sort of by the nature of what you're doing, interacting with the landscape. But do you find that you think about other less sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Other less impactful activities feel more like interacting, like even snowshoeing can be, you can kind of turn your brain off and just passively be walking through the woods. But like you said, there's so much going on around you. Do you find that uh, you apply that mentality to more stuff or do you have to, do you find you apply it to more stuff naturally or do you have to make the effort to turn that switch over in your head? Uh, honestly, most of my brain power these days is, is focused on uh, you're raising these girls. And I don't have <laughs> sure. for anything else. No, but I, you know, totally, I, I think uh, just like everything in life, uh, you can, you, it's training, um, you know, and in, in the case of fly fishing, you know, that training can be, uh, you know, taking classes of uh, uh, etymology and learning about the bugs or taking hydrology classes and learning about how water flows and, and what causes current. Um, you know, I, I think there's this idea that, it's like, oh, just go out there and, and just observe and open your mind and, and take things in. And, I, and to a certain degree, you can. But I think you also need a frame of reference and you need um, some more concrete science to attach that to. Um, and especially when it comes to fly fishing, because it, even though it doesn't have to be, uh, it's a scientific endeavor. Um, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, the behavior patterns of, of different species of cold water fish and the development and, and life cycles of a multitude of different underwater bugs um, and it's it's weather and, and like I said hydrology and geology and um, you know it all it all kind of comes together when you're standing in that water um, and yeah I think it's it's totally it's totally a, a matter of just training your mind to to be more open and observe you know I think you know the best ecologist and the best scientist is a great observer um, and I don't know I, I'm trying to extend this to like other forms of life like how do I how do I really increase my awareness of, of everything around me? And, and hopefully, and I kind of like the idea that we're blind to a lot of things in life, whether it's ghosts or UFOs, or, you know, you see the Virgin Mary and Pringle, um, you know, what, what, what are you aware of? Um, it's like, uh, sure. like the uh, multiverse kind of thing. Life is just pages on pages on pages. And if you can flip through them, you're going to, you're going to get a lot more out of life. You know, I got a crying baby. The thing, oh, that's all right. The thing I noticed the 
um, like I say, I, I grew up spin casting, fly fishing is something I came to really late in life and I'm not particularly good at it, but in doing a lot of the fish studies that are kind of necessary, you know, like I say, if you spin cast, you can throw a worm in and eventually something will go for it. But fly fashion, fishing, fly fashing, fly fishing, you need to be very specific about where that goes. And in order to know where it needs to go, you, like you said, you have to understand uh, how water flows and all of that stuff. And I remember as a student doing all of those studies to try to, uh, to try to be a little bit better at fly fishing. And it didn't help with that, but what it did help with was reading the water while in a canoe. Um, and I found, I just have, I remember having this moment of pulling on uh, Monsungan stream and having been up there fishing a little while ago and kind of having read it for fishing and then not had to read it again when I got into pole because, because I had already kind of, I kind of knew where everything was, but in a totally different like framework. Right. And I think that that's kind of, that kind of stuff, super interesting where it just kind of without you actively transferring that information to a different activity or skill, it just kind of happens. Um, and that's, I think that whole dovetailing thing, it can be an intellectual thing, but it's also, uh, if you're building a skill set or a way of living outdoors or living at all, really that, the, that stuff dovetails on its own without, without you making it do that. And I think that stuff's super interesting to me. Oh yeah. The transference of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, of course, I mean, you can get philosophical about um, ecology and science and, and life, but on a very physical level, it's like, yeah, if you're into fly fishing, that's going to make you a better canoeer. Uh, it's going to make you a better hunter uh, because you're going to be able to use that whole animal. Um, like I see, <laughs> I see, uh, you know, friends who go bird hunting and they're like, Oh, you know, I've got this, pile of feathers you want this or it's like you know what part of that deer am I going to mm -hmm. use flies with um and so it it definitely draws in a lot of skills and, and you could probably um you could probably forward that to a, a lot of aspects of your life um including environmental stewardship you know which should be on everyone's mind these days if you're in the fly fishing you better care about clean water um because you're when you're fishing you're literally standing in another environment and that water has to be very specific you know, if you're into, you know, catching bass and carp, you know, that water can be a little on the funky side, you know, but trout are very picky and the bugs that uh, trout eat are, are usually pretty picky as well. Um, and so if you, uh, you know, you care about fly fishing, you care about catching those fish, you, you need to care about that water, um, which uh, on, the, on the scale of like important, non-important waters, it's pretty far up there because that's what you make coffee with. <laughs> it's pretty high up there. Cool. Well, we're coming right up on the half hour mark, which is where I usually like to sure. kind of wrap these up. Um, but I always kind of like to end with asking about a particular experience you had outdoors that stuck with you or changed you. Um, it doesn't have to be about fly fishing. I just think that these are the, these are always the, the interesting stories to me is the ones that stick into people's brains and why, why do those stick into their brains? Right. So you got one that comes right to mind or... Yeah, yeah, of course, man. I mean, if nothing else, uh, fishermen, uh, you should be a good storyteller because uh, uh, if nothing else, at the end of the day, you've essentially spent a fortune of your life and your money and time and effort uh, to catch a fish. You're just going to like... Isn't that a... 
Isn't that a Jen, John Garrick, another John Garrick quote where he says it's just that all fishermen are liars? That, that is. That, that's, just flat out statement. It's, you know, and we, and we have to be because there's no other way to justify getting into a hobby where you spend tons of money and time to catch a fish. You're just going to let go. Um, and so you have to be in there for something more. Than <laughs> you got to be in it for more than the fish because if you're in it for the fish, uh, you're going to have a pretty short career sure. as, a, as a fly fisherman. Um, but... Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell a story, I guess it kind of ropes us back into, you know, being uh, Jack Mountain uh, alums and, and staff, um, was, uh, I, I'm going to take a stab at the year, I'm guessing maybe 2005 or six or four, somewhere, somewhere a while ago. Um, I think it might have been the summer after I was, oh yeah, honey, you can play the banjo in a second. Uh, it might have been a year or so after I was a student with Tim. Uh, I went back and I spent the summer just kind of hanging out with uh, hanging out with Tim when his school was down in New Hampshire. And I remember one day uh, we were did a little bit of rudimentary fly tying in his canoe barn. And I remember tying, if I can take a stab at it, it was probably an olive green woolly bugger. And I remember taking that fly out onto Russ Pond and paddling, pulling around and seeing, I was standing up because, you know, Tim was trying to break us a bad habits of just sitting down in the canoe. And so I was standing up in this boat and the water was clear. It was a sunny day. You could see, you know, 15 feet down in the lake. And I remember, you know, canoeing over this big small mouth and he was kind of swimming perpendicular to me. He swam under my boat and I could see where he was going. And I, uh, I'm not going to pretend to have a lot of skill at that time in my life as a fly fisherman, but I remember stripping some line off and throwing the woolly bugger out. And like I said, the water was gin clear, so you could see everything kind of happen in front of you. And it was just kind of one of those moments in life where you, everything makes sense. Everything works. It's all right, just a toddler falling off a gym bay. Come here, baby. Oh, come here. Babies done gym bays don't mix. And I remember seeing him, and he was swimming away from me. And I stripped some line off, threw a bugger out, and it landed maybe 10 feet in front of him. It started sinking, gave it a little strip, and I could see him swim right up, grab that bugger, and then swim off. I ended up catching that fish and bring him into the boat. And it's always stuck with me as one of those moments where everything kind of makes sense. You know, you put forth your effort, nature's there, there's an animal there, everything is doing what it needs to do to make a moment happen. Um, and, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say I had that great awareness I've been talking about for half an hour, um, but it was one of those moments where all that awareness kind of made sense of, of seeing things, understanding what's going to happen, and then putting, uh, putting your fly in, in the right place for, for a satisfactory response. That's awesome. Yeah, what, clear water and fishing is such a blessing. It is, man. It is. But yeah, cool. Well, thanks for coming on, Paul and uh, and Winnie. Thank you both for being here. And uh, yeah, I'll post to anything we mentioned. I'll link to in the show notes. And then um, yeah, do you have any last minute thoughts before we wrap up? <laughs> last minute thoughts, uh, man. Just do it. Just get into fly fishing. Uh, you know, like you said, Christopher, it's uh, it's an activity that really sucks you in. And I've seen people do it once, and that was about it. And then there's 
some people where you get out once and and you're you're done you know it just it becomes kind of everything that that uh that kind of takes over your brain power i think it was during your semester one of the other students in that class said gee paul you seem to be into fly fishing way more than bushcraft and outdoor living and uh it it, it gave me a lot of pause for thought and i was just like well i guess i guess you're right i mean that'd be like telling a banker he's way more into golfing than being a banker even though being a banker is what your life is all about you know it's that it's the idea that oh there's this activity you know that that really just that really hits you um so i i recommend it get out there get in the water make a fool of yourself to that i have a memory on my semester of paul i think it was probably like 4 45 or 5 in the morning of you running by my tents we were on a canoe trip you running by my tent like halfway pulling up your pants with your fly rod, just saying it's happening. And then looking out over the lake and seeing the mayfly hatch going. And it was, it was, it was just like, nobody had even had breakfast yet. And you were, you were sort of right in on that. It was, it was an awesome thing to watch. Cause I think you immediately hit a salmon, um, which was cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for it to work out that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you have that memory. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. For sure, man. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you guys all on the flip side. You've been listening to the School of the Forest podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I hope you share it with a few friends. If you did like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other of the major podcast hosting platforms. And lastly, if you'd like to learn more about School of the Forest programs, please check us out at schooloftheforest.com and get in touch with us at any of the contact information you'll find on that site. Thanks.